Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. My name is Nathan Fogdy. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at EBC, and it's my privilege to be up here uh, to declare, proclaim God's word today while our teaching pastor, Patrick Sliman, is on a well-deserved vacation. I just uh, appreciated those songs so much. They're so fitting leading into our time today, especially that last song. When you think of the grace of God, how it pardons and cleanses within We all need God's grace, amen? We need God's grace individually. We need God's grace as a church body because we're all part of a family. We as believers have been placed into a family, a spiritual family. From the moment of our salvation, God surrounds us with his children. Now, as you know, and maybe some of you know this a little too well, Being a part of a family is not without its challenges. Relational struggles abound, and at times, relationships are fractured. Why does this happen? How does this happen? When relationships in the body are in turmoil, can discipleship in community be truly effective? For the next two weeks, we're going to look at the threats to community discipleship. And we see these threats in Galatians chapter five. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter five. We're gonna start here, but we're gonna be bouncing all around the Bible this morning. Galatians chapter five. Now, before we dive into our text I'd like to give a quick background of Galatians because we're going to be spending a bit of time in Galatians 5 in the coming weeks. So I thought it'd be helpful to to provide a little bit of context here before we dive in. This letter was written by Paul to the churches of Galatia. This letter was, was likely to be distributed to other churches in that area. And this, this region is known as Asia Minor, which today is our modern-day Turkey, the country, not the meat. There were churches in the cities of Antioch, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, which were planted by Paul on his first missionary journey, and you see this in Acts 13 through 14. Why did he write this letter? <laughs> and you can go back to Galatians chapter 1, just a few chapters earlier, where he says here in verse six, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The churches were in a sense flirting with another gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed by false teachers who are confusing the Gentiles in this region of Galatia by saying that their faith in Christ must be supplemented by circumcision and other elements of the Mosaic law. And and those people, those false teachers were known in this day as the Judaizers. 
Now this issue, faith plus works, was the major issue of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Paul responds there in Acts 15 to the false teachers in writing this letter. He calls believers, both Jew and Gentile, backed to the pure gospel, which he first proclaimed to them, which is faith in Christ alone for salvation. As a result of the church's confusion on the gospel, there were some relational struggles within the church, which we can deduce from what is happening in Galatians chapter five. It is possible that those who had followed the false gospel of the Judaizers were looking down on those who had not succumbed to that erroneous teaching. The works of the flesh were coming to the forefront while the fruits of the spirit were being diminished. Is that how it should be? Is that how it is here at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Let's now look at Galatians 5. In chapter 5, Paul focuses on relationships between believers. He starts this by reminding his readers about freedom. We just sing about that. If we love God and have trusted in Christ, we have been set free. And what should freedom lead to? Well, before we talk about that, let's focus on that word freedom. Because when you hear the word freedom, you know, what, what comes to mind we just celebrated the 4th of July, where we're reminded of the freedoms we have in this country, and I praise God for those freedoms, but that is a different freedom than what Paul is talking about here in verse 1 or later in verse 13. He says here, Galatians 5, 1, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Later, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Now, in the context of this letter, what does freedom mean? Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 22. Galatians 3, 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Go to Galatians 4, verse 3. Galatians 4, 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Down to chapter 4, verse 8. However, at that time... When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And out of verse 24 of chapter four, this is allegorically speaking for these women, our two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Jerusalem above is free. 
Down verse 28, you brethren like Isaac are children of promise, but at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So there's obvious enmity here. (laughs) There's obvious challenges, obvious problems here in this group of believers. Verse 30, what does scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. We are free in Christ. In the context of this letter, freedom means liberation from the powers of the old age. Liberation from sin, the the elements of the world, false gods and the law. The freedom in this context and really in the whole Bible is not autonomy. It's not a do whatever I want attitude, which is what we might think of freedom when we think of in terms of that word today. In Christ, we are free. Yes. Chapter five, verse one. And we have been called to freedom. Chapter five, verse 13. And this is a freedom to be what God originally made us to be. Now, as a little side note, just thought I'd take this opportunity to just kind of share a little application point here. If you find yourself tempted next year, around this time, to share a picture on social media that highlights these verses in reference to 4th of July, make sure you make mention that these verses are actually about freedom in Christ, all right? It's not about American freedom. Maybe use that as a gospel opportunity. So just a little side note there. So Paul explains that this freedom leads to what? Denying the flesh. Look at Galatians 5, 13. You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The freedom that Paul has been talking about must not become an opportunity for the flesh. It shouldn't even be a possibility. If you've been around EBC for a while, you know what Paul is referring to in mentioning the flesh. And if if this is new to you, this might seem a little confusing. Why is Paul using this phrase, opportunity for the flesh? The Bible uses this, this word in one of two ways. The Bible uses this word in a physical or neutral sense of the word, which refers to to the soft tissues of the body or to the human body as a whole. The Bible also uses this word in a spiritual or negative sense. Hopefully you can see within this verse, it's, it's used in a spiritual sense, which refers to the inclination to sin that is in the heart of every person. Christian freedom can be easily abused and become a platform for sinful behavior. I'm sure you've seen this happen. Some of you have probably seen this happen even here at this church. A shared concern for someone is used to propagate gossip. This might be a little controversial, but saying maybe God has laid something on your heart could be used as a way to get others to do something that really you just want them to do. A question you can ask yourself is, do I use my freedom in Christ to gratify the flesh? May we make no such provision. May we be walking in the spirit, seeking to be obedient to the call of God on our lives as his children. We're not a slave to that kind of life anymore. We're free. 
And Christian freedom should lead to a form of Christian slavery, as we see here in this verse, where we are serving one another. Look at verse 13. Through love, serve one another. You could say it this way, through love, act as slaves toward one another. How has Paul addressed slavery in this letter? letter? Look back at chapter four, verse one. Chapter four, verse one. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We already looked at the verses later in this chapter, but you see this again in chapter five, verse one, is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It's not our life anymore. Paul has addressed slavery in this letter negatively. It's not a good thing. And yet he says here that that Christians are... to become like slaves to one another. It's pretty remarkable. There are two words that I want us to notice in this verse that are indicators of the direction Paul is taking in this letter. It's important for us to cover this before we move on and talk about the threats. The first one is love. And the second one, it's a compound word, so don't write me any letters. It's one another, all right? One dash another. So two words. Love demands a concern for others. Demands it. That the term one another brings out. Some of your versions might say in love. And that would be appropriate as well. Why? Because love is both the reason why we serve others and the manner in which we serve others. Or at least it should be. Now, again, before we get into the threats to community discipleship, some helpful questions to ask yourself might be, do I show love to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I show them love? Or what are some practical ways that I can show love to my brothers and sisters in Christ? What does that look like in your life? As we show love, we fulfill the law. You see that in verse 14. Fulfill the law. Love fulfills the law. Now this, this verse here, some of your Bibles might, might have capitalized letters here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is taken from Leviticus 19.18, which is in the greater context of the Mosaic law. Now obviously this isn't just one word. <laughs> Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement. But it's referring to this concept as a whole. Now, where else have you heard this verse in the New Testament? Hopefully you're all thinking Jesus, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. He brought this verse out as one of the two greatest commandments of the law. 
Yet Judaism gave no special attention to this command. Now it's reasonable to say that Jesus' teaching on this influenced other New Testament writers teaching on this. And Paul here in Galatians 5, you can think of Romans 13:9. If there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James brought this out in James 2:8. If you are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. John brought this out in 1 John 2, 7 through 8. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Paul keeps in step with biblical teaching that love for one, one's neighbor is central to the Christian life. And who is the neighbor mentioned here in Galatians 5.14? Look at the immediate context, but also look at the broader context. You can go over to Galatians 6, verse 10. Galatians 6.10, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Jesus referred to this idea of a neighbor in his parable of the Good Samaritan, a parable that I'm sure many of you know well. I don't want us to get too tied up with who is or is not one's neighbor, but it should get us thinking about how we are interacting with people that God brings along our path. Is that even on your mind? Hopefully we're reminded of how we are interacting with people, even with those who are sitting around us today. People that are part of your community. Paul's main purpose in this verse here in Galatians 5.14 is to encourage the kind of selfless, loving sacrifice that he has called for in the previous verse. So how does... Love fulfill the whole law. One author states, although he is not bound under the system of law as were Old Testament saints, when a Christian genuinely loves others, he fulfills all the moral elements of the Mosaic law. Romans 13 verses eight through 10 say this, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The law aims at doing good to others. And if one truly loves consistently, all that the law is aiming at is also accomplished. And this is possible. And again, we just sang about this. This is possible because of the transforming work and power of Christ in one's life. It's only through Christ that we are able to accomplish this. How are you doing in loving your neighbor? If we are loving our neighbor, then we are avoiding hurting them. Verse 15 of Galatians 5. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Paul contrasts this type of behavior with loving behavior. This isn't some cannibalistic warning. 
Paul is using imagery of animals biting and devouring one another, bickering and infighting among believers. Those things, Paul warns, can lead to destruction and they will. Paul, in using the word if with these verbs, shows that he knows that this kind of action is taking place among the Galatian churches. They're divided over the Judaizers and their message. And these churches are giving in to those threats of community discipleship. Whatever they are doing, they are not getting along. They're not loving one another. They're not serving one another. Now, what lengths are you willing to go to in order to avoid harming others? How are your words and how are your actions affecting people? Now, obviously we should not bite and devour one another. It's very clear. Let's continue on in verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So, but I say elaborates the point that he made earlier in verse 13. To counter the flesh's influence, Paul confronts the Galatians with the spirit. And the command in this verse serves as a theme for the whole entire section. That's why we're going through all of this this morning. Walk by the spirit. Now, what does walk refer to in this verse? Well, it refers to the Christian walk. Paul uses this term 30 times in his letters, but this is the only time he uses it in Galatians. Walk by the spirit. The believer's walk is determined by the spirit. And when you think about the character of the spirit, how does he do this? He directs and empowers Christian living. The result of walking by the spirit is that one does not gratify, one does not give into the flesh. So how do I discipline myself to walk by the spirit so I'm not gratifying the desires of the flesh? What does that look like in your life? Paul continues, verse 17, for the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the thing that you please. You have four different clauses here in verse 17. The first two are parallel with the other. They say basically the same thing. And the third summarizes the conflict and the fourth is a result. Paul makes a similar point about this conflict in Romans 8 verses five through six. He says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Now it should be noted that there is a contrast here. The focus of this passage is on man, how man should live. Now what does Paul bring into his teaching in the first part of verse 17? There's a conflict between Two powers, <laughs> desires of the flesh versus the spirit. Patrick brought that out last week. And man is caught up in this conflict. The conflict is between God's spirit and the impulse to sin. And this is an impulse that should no longer rule the believer. In light of what we just saw 
in chapter five, verse one, in light of what we just looked at in chapter five, verse 13. But that impulse still exerts influence that must be resisted. That's why we're covering the threats of community discipleship these two weeks. Paul brings this to the believer's attention. Brothers and sisters, we need to wake up. We need to be on alert. Be reminded of what Patrick went through in Ephesians chapter six last week. We need to be on guard. We need to realize that we are caught up in this spiritual battle. We need to take Paul's command seriously to walk by the spirit. Now the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please here in verse 17, the end of verse 17 here, you have these two powers at war and you're stuck in the middle of it all. What would be a result of that? You can't do what you wanna do. The flesh does as it wills and the spirit does as he pleases and only by allowing the spirit to take control, which means denying, not gratifying the flesh, can the believer have victory in this area. In light of our topic, not giving in to those threats of community discipleship. This is a relationship that will be manifested in and vindicated by the fruits of the spirit in a person's life. People's actions are either governed by the flesh or by the spirit. Where are you? Where are you? Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. In contrast to the battle of the flesh and the spirit, the spirit is the victor for the Christian. And Paul started here in this little section, verse 16, by urging believers to walk by the spirit. And now he speaks of believers being led by the spirit. And Paul uses this term in Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, what are some things you have heard when someone says they are led by the spirit? I'm sure they're numerous. I'm sure the list is endless. This verb here in verse 18, being led by the spirit is not some existential feeling. It's a continual influence by and directed by the spirit. I mean, people apart from Christ are led by idols. 1 Corinthians 12, 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Their whole being is determined by false gods, but Christians, Lord willing, all of us here today are people who are under the influence of the spirit. It's not just that. Look at the second half of verse 18 of Galatians 5. You are not under the law. This refers to the Mosaic law. Believers are no longer subject to the rule of the law. The Galatians were being tempted to do just that by the Judaizers. Paul is saying that if one has the spirit, which happens when someone places their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, they are not under that rule anymore. We are under a new covenant. The law has no binding authority on us. And in this verse, Paul brings another appeal to the Galatians to reject submitting to the law, to the teaching of the Judaizers. We as a body of believers are called to walk by the Spirit, to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, as we'll see in a couple weeks. We are not to feed the flesh. 
So, specifically, when it comes to community discipleship, discipleship in community, however you want to say it, what are some things to avoid? What threats are there to community discipleship today? We're going to look at two of those threats. Two of those threats. What are they? Selfishness and manipulation. Selfishness and manipulation. Let's look at Galatians 5.20. I'll start in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Focusing in on Galatians 5.20 this morning where we glean those threats of selfishness and manipulation. In verse 20, we see the word enmities. Not a word we use often, I assume. But another way to describe this word would be hatred or expressions of hatred. One of those expressions of hatred could be selfishness. Might not think about it in those terms, but at its core, you're just thinking about yourself. So in essence, you're hating someone else. We desire to be right. Whether it's in an argument or just in casual conversation, I can say with a fair amount of confidence that we do not like being wrong. I mean, does anyone here enjoy being wrong? No? Okay, good. We might think that our view on a particular topic is the right one, and everyone else or maybe just the other person in the conversation is wrong. Now, it's obvious that we are born with a heart of selfishness. One can look no further than a toddler who is asked to share his or her toy. However, we who are in Christ know that this thinking is wrong. We've seen selfishness existing within man from the beginning of the Bible. Uh, turn with me to, to Genesis 13. Genesis 13, if you want, keep, keep a hold there in Galatians 5, but turn to Genesis 13. Now, this is following the narrative of Abram, whom is probably better known to us as Abraham, going down to Egypt during a famine in the land of Canaan. I want you to notice what Lot, Abram's nephew, does in this passage. Look with me starting in verse 1, Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So 
Abram said to Lot, please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, and if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan that was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Did you notice Lot's actions in this passage? Uh, he took a look over the vast, fertile Jordan Valley and it's like his eyes got real big. It's like, I can't help myself. It's all he could see. It's all he was concerned about. And he chose that land for himself without care for Abram, his uncle. You might think about Jacob stealing the birthright in Genesis 27. You might think about the shepherds of Israel feeding themselves and not the flock in Ezekiel 34. From the beginning, selfishness has been an issue for man. Now turn with me to James chapter three. Wants to see this, James chapter three. James chapter three, verse 14. Again, this concept shouldn't be new to us. We all know this. We all know, yeah, I'm not supposed to be selfish, but we're all prone to this. James three fourteen. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Continue on. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. If you have bitter jealousy, which uh, Dave McAllister is gonna cover next week, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. In reference to, to being natural, it's not like a good thing, it's bad. Selfishness was an issue for New Testament saints as well. In this epistle, those saints are the, the 12 dispersed tribes just described in chapter one, verse one. Again, selfishness should not characterize the believer. Now, you may think that you are not selfish, but I would argue that we are all prone to selfishness. And that is why Paul wrote to the Philippian church, do nothing from selfishness or empty deceit. Philippians 2, 3. We are not to merely look out for our own personal interests, Philippians 2, 4. Do you find yourself talking about what only interests you? Something to ask yourself. Do you find yourself talking about what only interests you? How often do your conversations revolve around yourself? Do you ever show interest in others? 
Think about other areas in your life where you may be selfish. It could be your time. You just wanna do what you wanna do without regard for others. It could be with your finances, which leads to you being stingy instead of being a blessing. Maybe you just don't think about how your actions affect others. Now, I'm not arguing for some sort of people-pleasing mindset here. Don't hear me wrong. But we should take time to think outside of ourselves and ask the question, are my actions seeking to serve others as Christ would have me to do, or do they only serve me? This also extends to the words that we say. Having the mindset, mindset of, well, I just tell it like it is, or I just speak my mind, those are extremely self-serving. Instead of speaking words that build up or edify in light of what Ephesians 4.29 calls us to do, words or phrases or statements like, I just tell it like it is, or I just speak my mind, are the exact opposite of what we're called to do. They build you up, which is selfish. Now, this expression of hatred could lead to what we see next in verse 20 of Galatians 5, which is strife. Strife. This word could also be rendered as discord or quarreling. It's closely related to enmities because this is a self-orienting bickering that can lead to factions, which again, Dave is going to cover next week. Think about what happens when you don't get your own way. Does a word come to mind? Maybe that word is manipulation. There may be a tendency because of the self-orienting nature of your actions that you try to manipulate situations to get what you want. There is total disregard for others. There is only regard for self and you will do whatever is necessary to acquire your desired outcome. This is completely unholy. I mean, call it what it is, it's, it's sin. Going back to that example of Jacob that I brought up earlier, remember this, he deceived his father with a little help from his mother by putting hair on his body so that his father, Isaac, who was blind, would think he was his brother Esau. This is like a bad movie, right? He convinced his father that the Lord had such a special favor upon him that he was able to quickly prepare a meal for Isaac. And he flat out lied and said that he was his brother. All so that his father would bless him before Isaac died. These manipulative acts created a wedge between Jacob and his brother for years. Jacob flees Canaan and has much hardship, if you're familiar with that story, much hardship in acquiring a wife. Thankfully, as recorded in Genesis 33, Esau receives Jacob favorably as Jacob returns to the land of Canaan. But again, this is not without much hardship. One may think of that example and think, well, if Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel went through this, what hope is there for me? Again, we're prone to selfishness. We're prone to manipulating circumstances to get our way. So 
What is the remedy of selfishness and manipulation? How can we thwart these threats to community discipleship? Well, it might be a little or a lot cliche, but we must look to Christ. We must look to Christ. We must look to him as our ultimate example of what to do. Think of Christ. Think of the eternal word who became flesh. Why? Because he would ultimately pay the price of sin on our behalf. This is the the eternal son in all of his glory being made low for wretches, for sinners like us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, again, clothed in splendor, majesty, glory, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty, through faith in who he is and what he has done, might become rich. We need to remain humble before our brothers and sisters. Turn with me to Philippians 2. Heard that some of you are already in Philippians 2 this morning. Well, guess what? You get a double dose today. We all need that. I know I do. Philippians 2. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Again, Christ is our ultimate example here. He is the one who, and you can look a few verses down, although he existed in the form of God, he's divine. He's perfect in every way, completely other than us. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he did this by taking the form of a bond servant. Being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, do we have that same sacrificial, selfless love for others? How is that practically seen in this community of believers where you have been placed? Do you have a love and care for the people of EBC? And what does that look like? Yes, it will be hard. One author says this, living unselfishly will likely not cost us our lives, but it will cost It will cost time and money. It will cost becoming interested in the interests, concerns, and needs of others. And it will cost in learning to be considerate of the emotions and feelings of others. Yes, it will cost us. But the God-glorifying discipleship of this community is worth the cost. I hope you all can see that this morning. It's worth the cost. 
God's favor is worth the cost. Isaiah 66, two, but to this one, I will look. To this one, I will turn my eyes, my gaze to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God's favor is worth the cost and your exaltation is worth the cost. First Peter five, verses six through seven, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We as your elders at EBC have been encouraging our local body of believers to be involved in the lives of others. That's why we have, have emphasized home discipleship groups this year. That's why we have emphasized discipleship relationships over these past couple years. We desire for that to permeate the culture of our church. Are you willing to humble yourself to be in the lives of others in our church? Or do you think you got it all together? You're good on your own. You're not. I hope you're willing to humble yourself in the lives of others in our church. We need each other. If you're not willing to be involved, I ask why? Why would you not take the time to selflessly love and care for others in our church? In light of what we have covered this morning, I think that that's a question you should be asking yourself. I encourage you to pray and ask the Lord to show you why you do not desire to be interested in these precious people in our church. We all need to be on guard when it comes to these threats to community discipleship, selfishness and manipulation. Our holiness as a church depends on it. And as we saw last week, our, our witness to this valley depends on it, to this region depends on it. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and righteous and good. There's none like you. You are completely other than us, us wretches, us sinners. And yet we have access to you through your son. Through faith in him, you have given us your spirit so we can walk by the spirit and be led by the spirit in these things. I pray that we would be on guard against these threats to community discipleship. That we would live such selfless, self-sacrificing lives for the betterment of this community in which you have placed us in. That in seeking to honor you in this, we would be honoring and preferring one another in love, serving one another in love, seeking the best in others. May we seek to build up, may we seek to care, to be involved and invested where you have us. Again, this is only possible because of who we are in your son. I pray that we would be reliant on the power that we've been given through faith in Christ to overcome whatever sinful tendencies we have in this area, that we would seek to live holy lives to please 
our holy God. Be honored and glorified as we seek to put these things into practice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.